ship All my senses have been stripped And my hands can't feel to grip And my toes too numb to step Okay, put, put the DJ computer on My boot heels to be wandering You can hear Onto my own parade Cast your dancing spell my way I promise to go under it Welcome to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with Ahmed and Summer. On today's program, we're going to be talking about the latest that's happening in uh, Palestine. We'll have a guest speaker or a guest uh, a guest on the program, not a guest speaker. And it's, of course, it's Ramadan. So uh, we'll also, someone I will be speaking about what's happening with uh, Ramadan, that and also your phone calls and more when we come back. Um, this is True Talk on, let me see, let me get my music on WMNF. The Almighty, Allahu Allah, protect me and guide me. Allahu Allah, oh, to your love and mercy. Allahu Allah, yeah, Allah, don't deprive me. Allahu Allah, from beholding your beauty. Allahu Allah, oh, my Lord, accept this plea. Allahu Allah. Allah 
Hayreyle hem akşam hem sabahlarımı Hadi Rabbi Welcome to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with uh, Ahmed and Samar, Ramadan Mubarak to all our listeners and supporters, and especially our Muslim listeners that are observing the holy month of Ramadan. Uh, Samar, welcome to True Talk. Good morning, Ahmed. How are you? Ramadan Kareem, inshallah. Ramadan Kareem, um, last time... You weren't on the show last uh, Thursday, but how is your Ramadan going? Because we, t- we started talking about Ramadan last week and what it means to us and stuff. And we'll talk a bit more about that um, after the, the our first segment. But how is your Ramadan going? So far, so good. I'm so happy, Ahmed. I lost like uh, three pounds, <laughs> which is really uh, a side effect of uh, Ramadan uh, because we refrain from uh, drinking and eating. And I tried the first time to uh, wake up for the early breakfast, which is like it ends by 6 a.m. I did it only once and I missed it the past 10, 12 days. And um, I break my fasting eating uh, three dates or four and tea. So it calms my stomach. And then I have like regular dinner and I can't eat anymore. So I lost like three pounds. I don't know if you did too. Um, I think I might have lost some, but that's, it's actually not always the case that people are losing weight in Ramadan uh, because um, while we can't eat during the daylight hours, um, we can't uh, drink uh, or take, you know, actually consume anything. You can't even chew gum. Um, but when the sun sets, then people are allowed to do all of that. And uh, many people make up for it uh, overnight. So I remember like even last night, I it was like one in the morning and I hear somebody in the kitchen and, I, and my son is there and he's making a meal for himself. What's going on? He said I was hungry. So um, I don't know. So not everyone is losing weight um, in Ramadan, but it's definitely, and we'll talk more about uh, our Ramadan a little bit, but I'm glad that you're, it's going well for you and, um, you know, you're adjusting. Um, we're now uh, going to be joined by our first guest who wrote an article in the Al Jazeera and it's titled Under Israeli Surveillance Living in uh, Dystopia in Palestine. And the subheadline is as a Palestinian Jerusalemite, I live in a surveillance society not that different from those in dystopian science fiction novels. Samar, please uh, introduce our our guest writer or guest on the show today. Oh, maybe Samar's not there. Okay, well, welcome to the program, uh, Jalal uh, Abu. I'm back. Oh, Oh, you're back? What happened, Samar? I waited. I waited. uh, uh, Good morning or good evening, Jalal. But I waited like almost six months to get the phone man to come and fix our phone. (laughs) 
and he decided to show up just now, so I apologize. But I'm very happy, Ahmed, to say that I have we have uh, with us from Jerusalem. Uh, Jalal Abu Khater, who is a Palestinian born and raised in Jerusalem. He's a writer and he holds a master's degree in diplomacy from the University of Malta. He's also a prolific writer. He is on uh, Twitter. And um, he just published a very interesting op-ed. It's called Under Israeli Surveillance Living in Dystopia uh, in Palestine. I know nobody is paying attention to what what is going on in Palestine now, but uh, I feel that there is an intifada and uprising happening. Um, Jalal uh, is going to tell us how do they live under this um, surveillance. Uh, good morning, Jalal, or good evening. I know it's uh, late in Jerusalem. Good, good morning to you guys. Good morning to you, Samar and Ahmed. And I'm um, happy to be here with you. It's uh, 6 p.m. actually here in Jerusalem. Oh, I, yes, I know. And you're going to be breaking your fasting uh, at the top of the hour. Jalal, uh, it's a very interesting uh, op-ed you wrote because you talk about surveillance and how the whole world was paying attention to the NSO group and the Pegasus. We're going to talk about it maybe uh, later. But you also mentioned that Every moment of your life, every action you do, every breath you take is, you know that you are under surveillance. Can you explain that to us? Like how, how is that? Um, first of all, I feel this is a topic that um, it grabbed my interest since I was very young. The, the issue of privacy, of surveillance, of being watched, um, mainly through science fiction. Uh, I was in school when I was like way too obsessed with 1984, the George Orwell novel. I was watching movies and films and um, with time, I was getting the critical uh, perspective onto those like movies. And I was thinking the there's, there's a scary concept uh, here when, when there's cameras and surveillance systems and there's the use of those uh, the imagery of those cameras to put the person in a scary like uncomfortable situation when you feel you're being watched you're always being watched and i don't live in science fiction we don't live in any, any of those dystopias where the secret police would barge in through the door suddenly because you said the wrong word and they would arrest you and take you to a prison it's it's not a dystopia it's not a fiction that i live i live in, in a reality where the thought, our thoughts are policed, our conversations are policed, our behavior is always being monitored, patterns of behavior are analyzed, all for the purpose of maintaining a control of us, a population that is living under a system of apartheid and occupation for uh, decades. Um, Israel, as a, as a concept, it's a settler colony, it is an occupier state, and it will not be able to maintain itself as such a state if it's not always maintaining its hegemony over us, the, the subjects of this occupation, this apartheid state. We are the colonized people. And to, to maintain their own hegemony over us, they need the most uh, exclusive and the most advanced surveillance systems to maintain such uh, control. It's a very scary uh, place to be in, but it's a reality we have to live through. So other than cameras in the streets because people might think here in the US, okay, it's uh, cameras. We have them in some cities also, although so many people are against them. 
But you are talking about, for instance, your emails, your phone calls, your text messaging. Can you elaborate more on how it infringes on your privacy, on your own personal privacy? Like if you're, if you have a girlfriend or a fiance or a wife, they 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 can spy on all that. Can you elaborate? Uh, okay. Uh, for, first of all, I'm just gonna say a very small thing about cameras. I know people think or consider cameras to be acceptable, but even in Jerusalem itself, um, our Jerusalem, where we live, mostly East Jerusalem, the public space and every space that we move around, in, like out outside of our homes, it's monitored with huge cameras, with facial recognition t- uh, cameras, and it's always uh, rolling, and we are made to see it. Everywhere we look, we are made to see the watchtower. It's like a big tower with five or six cameras watching us. If you cross a few <clears throat> uh, a kilometer away to the western part of Jerusalem, we're still in the same city, and you go to a public space in the western part where it's mainly Jewish neighborhoods. Of course, there were Palestinian neighborhoods at some point before Nakba, and then they, were, they became Jewish when they conquered uh, the western part of the city. Uh, if you go there, the public space is not monitored in the same way that our public space is monitored. So it's not even being in the States or being far. It's in this one city where there is super extensive surveillance of one community based on an identity. And there's almost none. There's a respect for the right of privacy and the respect for the right of people to socialize and do, do whatever they want in the western part of the city. A park is not monitored in the western part as it is in the eastern part. There's not even parks actually to, to monitor, but the idea is it's a super extensive system of surveillance that it's, you can't really compare it unless you have to justify from the different colonial reasons. Um, sorry, Samar, I, that was took a bit too long. In regards to emails and phones and private conversations, we've always, um, we, we had to always maintain this um, the consciousness to be aware that we could be tapped into, our phones could be tapped into all the time. We we understand that the Israelis always do this to target people. They would send a text message to someone saying, we've heard you saying this and this, uh, warning, we can we can come and arrest you. So we've, no, we've known of stories where the Shabak, the intelligence services of the Israeli uh, state, the Shabak would contact people based on information they collected through those means, through monitoring social media activity, through monitoring our private emails, or private conversations on the telephone. They use those methods to scare us into us policing ourselves and thinking or knowing for a fact that we are always being listened to and we cannot really communicate and socialize in a proper way without feeling uh, the freedom that people are supposed to feel. We feel like if someone wants to say a simple word about Palestine or about a friend who was killed in an attack or um, any, any word of protest, on the phone to a, to a, a confidant of ours or an intimate partner, for example, we feel like, oh, I'm going to stop, not say that part because maybe my phone is tapped into and I feel the consequence could be worse. They want us to be scared into not acting and not doing and not speaking. So we all think we're always being watched and every conversation we have is being monitored. It's a, it's a way to scare people away from resisting the really, really um, horrible uh, occupation that's been ongoing for uh, decades and also the apartheid situation that we live under. Let me remind our listeners, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. Ahmed and I are talking to Jalal Abu Khater, who is a Palestinian writer who is based in uh, Jerusalem. You also mentioned in your op-ed uh, 
that uh, even if you have to leave uh, Jerusalem and go to Ramallah, there is another system of surveillance, and I think uh, it's called hawk eyes. Can you explain that? Uh, yes, there is a system called the hawk eye cameras. Uh, usually, they come in several parts. The main, the main part of the hawk eye cameras are um, license plate readers. So they read every uh, license plate that is crossing through a certain point. Um, it's also <clears throat> sorry, it's also backed up by a camera that um, scans the shape of the vehicle, the unique shape of the vehicle. So it is uh, the, the shape itself could identify its its owner uh, more than more so than a license plate, for example. And those uh, that system of cameras, because I live in eastern Jerusalem and I go to Ramallah, I also travel through the West Bank. I've, I I I recognize those cameras now. Uh, they have a certain distinguishing feature. And they're present, they're made to be very present on every intersection, every checkpoint, and every, um, like, <coughs> sorry, a major intersection on a road that leads from a Palestinian neighborhood or a Palestinian village or a Palestinian town into another. Uh, whenever we cross through our communities, we travel between uh, cities or towns or villages, we're always tracked uh, in real time. So if my car is going from Jerusalem to Ramallah at this hour, and then from Ramallah to a different village Taibe at this hour and going elsewhere, I am made to know through those, those cameras that there is a log keeping live updates of my movements all the time. They know where I'm going, what I'm doing, what my behavior is. And it makes me very self-conscious that um, what if they get some data that they can use against me, for example? What if... Um, they, they they want to get a pressure point on me and they would analyze my behavior and think, okay, we can pin that thing on him. It makes me feel paranoid. And I feel I'm stronger than most people, but I feel many people are going to succumb to this paranoia and change their behavior because they know whenever they use their car to travel, they're being watched at every single corner. Those system of cameras are almost non-existent in Jewish communities in the, the other side in Israel in uh, Jewish cities um, uh, uh, and elsewhere, those cameras, those systems are non-existent. They just are, are in our faces to make sure that our population under occupation, East Jerusalem and the West Bank are always being monitored, especially like where we go, who we talk to and what cities we spend most of our, of our time in. You mentioned pressure points. People listening might not understand what you mean by that. By that. In the context of Israel and the Palestinians, uh, can you explain what you mean by pressure points? Of course, um, there is a point in my op-ed that I mentioned. Um, there was an interview done with a few soldiers who were exposing a program they had worked on. Those soldiers are from the 8,200 uh, uh, intelligence unit in the Israeli military. Um, they were confessing to the program of surveilling. Um, telephone calls between people, between uh, people in the West Bank. Any suspect or target of surveillance would have a few um, reservist soldiers on a desk listening to all their conversations, trying to look, how can we target this person? What, where, where's the weak point? Where's the pressure point? Pressure points <clears throat> could be um, financial problems. It could be martial uh, problems. Uh, it could be... Um, exposing a person's sexual or gender orientation. 
um, perhaps there's a gay person, for example, that they caught and they feel like this person could be pressured into working with us or pressured into giving information because I don't think this person wants to wants anyone to know that he is engaged in a sexual relationship with a different partner, for example. And um, people uh, are sometimes willing to um, collaborate in that sense or like pass information or to do anything in order not to be exposed if they're like being uh, bad in a financial or a, or a marital or any kind of relationship technically so there are pressure points community uh, the community does not accept people who are cheating for example who are um, yeah you know pressure points are are difficult to to define technically but it's basically using people's lives against them people's yeah. private lives using it against them yeah, I wanted you just to uh, like explain it because here in the US, people might like think of their bodies when they do a massage of pressure points or something like that. But this is really uh, a diabolic uh, system of uh, control. And then Jalal, in spite of uh, like what you're mentioning and this encroachment on your personal life and security in Jerusalem and uh, in Ramallah in the West Bank, which is supposedly occupied and supposedly where the Palestinians should have a state. You mentioned that life in Hebron is even much more difficult and that people call it the Hebron smart city. How is Hebron different? And could Hebron be... Uh, like repeated and copy and paste in other cities like even Jerusalem? Um, of course, the example in Hebron is different and unique to what goes on in Jerusalem, in small senses, of course. The, the main thing I can say in Jerusalem is that they are <clears throat> dealing with a city. It's occupied, of course, is Jerusalem, but they're dealing with people who... Um, have access to certain a certain tier of rights. They're not citizens, but they are able to maintain a certain level of um, control over East Jerusalemites. It's it's a different. Uh, it's sorry. It's civil law that applies to Jerusalemites in East Jerusalem, but in Hebron and also in the West Bank, military military law applies to the Palestinians under occupation. Of course, no need to mention, but the settlers who live in the West Bank do not uh, apply uh, military law on, on them. They they have um, civil law applied to settlers, but that's a double standard under apartheid. So in Hebron, military law applies. The military law is uh, basically does not give much rights to the occupied population. Um, it does not respect many of the occupied population's um, rights to movement, uh, to speech, to assembly, to socialize freely. Um, what goes on in Hebron is being replicated and applied on a wider level across the West Bank uh, rather than Jerusalem. Because the West Bank, there is a huge system of checkpoints. There are many choke points that um, split cities or towns from each other. People uh, always travel on roads that are controlled by the Israeli occupation forces. They travel through checkpoints. It's very easy to, I'm sorry, it's very, um, there's there's a system of control in the West Bank that you don't see in East Jerusalem because it's the military that takes takes over this system. Uh, when I travel in, within Jerusalem, I'm not stopped by the military. I'm stopped by the police or other arms of the Israeli state, occupation state. But in the West Bank, Hebron, 
what goes on in Hebron, you will see in Ramallah. It's, you will see in Nablus. You will see in other towns and villages where a, where a soldier would stop you, scan your face with a phone, and get your entire uh, profile ID, perhaps uh, input more data on the person. The system in Hebron, the Blue Wolf uh, system in the Hebron Smart City, you will see that across uh, the West Bank mainly. Uh, the, the similar parts of Hebron and Jerusalem is that settlers are living very deep within the Palestinian neighborhoods in both places. And uh, the life of Palestinians is made hell, literally. It's made to become like hell. In Hebron, there's a checkpoint if you want to go from your house to your neighbors or, or to go to the shop for groceries. There are multiple checkpoints every few meters in Hebron, all city. That's why they want to maintain all that surveillance in order to make sure that our population is controlled fully and theirs has the liberty to move freely and uh, safely. If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF with Ahmed and Summer. We're speaking to Jalal Abu Khater. He's um, a writer and a Palestinian living in Jerusalem. He wrote an op-ed um, in Al Jazeera titled Under Israeli Surveillance, Living in the Dystopia in Palestine. Um, in your article, you also mentioned about the uh, Pegasus program um, that's by the NSO company, which is an Israeli company uh, that has been um, selling its services and tools to uh, dictatorship regimes and uh, targeting uh, human rights people uh, that advocate for human rights. And um, one of those people uh, was actually your friend. They found the software on his phone and apparently um, they were monitoring conversations you've had with him as well as your chats. Um, what is this, what's Pegasus uh, capable of doing as far as you know? Um, it's, First of all, it was very predictable that this insanely powerful tool of espionage, of surveillance, is an Israeli-made tool, Israeli-produced and promoted by the Israeli state as well as the Israeli private sector. It was very predictable for this to be the case. And it was also very predictable that the main consumers of this product that is made by Israel are dictatorial regimes, are the, are the ones, the tyrants who are targeting their own populations, the centers within their people and monitoring their behaviors and uh, their intimate conversations on the phones. <clears throat> Pegasus, Pegasus is super advanced in the, in the fact that it is undetected. It goes undetected for, for a while and it's able to view everything the user is viewing themselves. So if we assume that our WhatsApp conversation or signal conversations are secured through encryption. What Pegasus does is it doesn't matter because it already reads what you are reading yourself. It already detects what you are, um, <clears throat> the, how, how you're using the phone. So there is no safe application to communicate uh, through. And it just made me feel paranoid because um, friends, people I know who work on sensitive, uh, sensitive uh, files, such as the ones that deal with uh, the International Criminal Court in The Hague, people who are working on matters that are bringing embarrassment to Israel on the, in the world scene, on the world stage, sorry, people who are exposing Israeli war crimes like properly in a systematic way, going through lawyers, going through the right channels, 
they are the ones who are targeted by Israel. Israel assumes that if we are targeting lawyers and we're targeting uh, people who are human rights uh, defenders in those fields, that they'll be scared if they know that every thing, single thing they say on a WhatsApp conversation uh, or, or user phone or anything they, they, they communicate about on the phone, it will be monitored by the Israelis. It, it's, a, it's a tool to instill fear within us. I think the only thing they didn't realize was that the, tar- the activists and the lawyers they're targeting are some of the most determined people to bring those cases of war crimes to the International Criminal Court, for example. They are the most dedicated to their work to, to find justice for, for the victims of war crimes and crimes against humanity. So th- those people are only going to learn how to navigate and avoid the system of surveillance. There is always a need to change your patterns of behavior. There is no normal work that is being done in Palestine. Everything we do, if you're a journalist collecting data, if you're a researcher, if you work for Amnesty, for example, if you work for anything that cares about Palestinian rights and Palestinian existence, you should expect to be a target. And that's what uh, we've learned through the past couple of years, that anyone could be a target. It doesn't have to be the prominent activist or anything. It could be anyone who is writing uh, pieces or just making movies, for example. So it seems like, I mean, with this, um, all the surveillance, it's by design. What do, you, what do you think the end goal is uh, by the Israeli state? Is it to drive Palestinians out? Is it to just subject them to, um, you know, I mean, it's not just to invade their privacy. What's their end goal of all this surveillance, um, you know, around the clock? And that the fact that, I mean, here in America, for example, in order for the police to listen to your phone calls, they need to have a, a warrant signed by a judge there. Uh, you know, the Constitution, you know, forbids them to just uh, do, um, you know, uh, unnecessary uh, search and seizure. And that would include, you know, listening to devices or listening to phone calls. And we're often told here in America that, you know, Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East that just certain you know, spying on anyone at any time seems to me that is not a practice of a democracy. And finally, can they also spy on uh, Jews in the same way, Jewish residents or citizens in the same way, without any search warrants at any time? Um, actually, that's a very, very good point. The Israelis act uh, as as if they are a state of law, like as if they are uh, they use the use rule of law to govern their state. Uh, they, they sell Israel as a, democ- a democracy to, to their Western allies. There, there is a, there's a thing that Israelis always try to do. They pretend that the occupation is temporary and they deal with the Palestinians and as the occupied people where a Palestinian cannot actually have the civil rights of the Israeli state because the Palestinian is occupied. So the Israeli feels like if we maintain the status of occupation, the legal status of occupation, they'll be able to evade any legal responsibility when it comes to Israel being a democracy. Uh, there becomes a separate, a two-system, two a two-tier system that governs Israel. There is the Palestinians who are governed by military law. They go to military courts. The judges and the prosecutors are, are the state and the military. Um, their law is stronger and more powerful than the Israeli civil law that governs the situation of Israeli citizens, as well as some of uh, 
other residents such as myself and East Jerusalemites. But all of us are occupied people with less rights than other Jewish Israelis. <clears throat> so when the issue of Pegasus was brought up, uh, Israelis themselves were, were concerned that Israel is monitoring Palestinian activists. They were worried that there would be monitoring on Israelis themselves. And that's what, what got exposed a few months ago, that the Shabak and the police were indeed monitoring uh, Israeli political activists, Israeli political um, uh, figures on the right, on the left of Israeli politics, Jewish Israelis, of course. And that was happening through Pegasus. There was a lot of fuss about this in the media. Uh, the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, uh, had a huge debate on it as well. And Israeli lawmakers almost overwhelmingly uh, were against any form of surveillance of Israeli citizens, first. Second, they were so against any kind of installing facial recognition cameras in areas where Israeli citizens are socializing. There was a huge fuss when the program was exposed to target Israelis. But at the same time, all the news about Israeli surveillance programs such as Pegasus and other total surveillance programs uh, such as what goes on in Hebron and the telephone monitoring uh, system, when that those surveillance systems are targeting Palestinians, there isn't a fuss among the Israelis and the media and the Knesset does not debate whether the use of uh, those surveillance methods on Palestinians under occupation is valid or not. Uh, they're always trying to get out of the legal argument by saying that they're occupying the Palestinians. And when you ask me about the end goal, what is their end goal? The Israelis, as a colonizer state, the only thing they want to keep is the status quo, what is going on right now. They want to maintain this situation where we have we have no state, we, have, we are stateless, no horizon, we're trapped, uh, living our days day by day. Um, we're not really optimistic about a, a good future, but everyone is just existing day by day and trying to live. They want to maintain the status quo, despite how violent and brutal and unjust the status quo is. They want to maintain it at our own expense. So the surveillance systems, the, the intrusiveness of everything, it's just meant to keep the the system as it is to keep the population under, under control and to try to preemptively prevent any kind of active resistance or to um, sorry to stop people from resisting as well like if if one one guy was thinking of doing a resistance act and he felt that he's being watched all the time maybe they think maybe the the repressiveness of the surveillance will stop that person from actually resist, resisting the fighting against the israeli occupation they want us to stop fighting and just be uh, soulless people living under occupation. Jalal, um, um, to our listeners, we're talking to Jalal Abu Khatir, a Palestinian writer based in Jerusalem. He's the author of a very fascinating and disturbing op-ed, Jerusalem. Uh, sorry, it's called um, Under Israeli Surveillance Living in Dystopia in Palestine. And for our listeners, in case somebody doesn't know the meaning of dystopia, I just looked it up. It's um, an imagined state or society in which there is great suffering or injustice, typically one that is totalitarian or post-apocalyptic. One final uh, note, Jalan, I'm not sure if my co-host uh, mentioned that, but I have a feeling other than everything that you have said, that all these systems of surveillance uh, are being tested and used 
like the Palestinians are a lab where they can promote these uh, systems and sell them, they have been tested. They have like on the ground proof that they have been tested. Is that uh, correct? Um, that is very true. Um, there's always pieces coming out exposing the companies that are profiting and profiteering of apartheid of this system of control. Um, it, it's, a, it's a very shameless act by Israel and it's a thing that many people know. Israelis are inventive when it comes to repressive and um, extremely like um, repressive and oppressive uh, systems of control, whether it's surveillance or other means of population control. They're very inventive. Uh, it's what keeps their economy running as well. They are making profits of the sale of weapons. They're making profits of the sale of drones, armed drones. And at the same time, there's a whole field of uh, high tech that Israel is very, uh, very um, good at uh, promoting and selling globally. The high tech is mostly uh, repressive technologies that are used in the West Bank on checkpoints, um, mainly on checkpoints. And people will buy it. There will be clients all over the world. There will be governments which feel like Israel is doing very well in controlling this population in this way. And there will be buyers. There is benefit. It's very well recorded. There are many private companies in Israel and elsewhere in Europe <clears throat> or elsewhere that are making huge profits of those systems of surveillance that are tried and tested on the Palestinian population before they are promoted for sale globally. Finally, um, I wanted to ask you, uh, Jalal, um, you know, when you say that uh, there's this double standard, people are not making a fuss. Uh, they were not making a fuss when uh, it was revealed that these surveillance programs and facial recognitions are targeting Palestinians, but once they realize that it may be used or is being used against uh, Israeli Jews, then there was a, you know, uproar and a problem. It reminds me of what's happening um, with the war in Ukraine, how the whole world is now united in sanctioning Russia for uh, their invasion uh, of Ukraine and uh, of their occupation. Um, however, uh, including you know the United States and the State Department. However, uh, some of these things have been going on now for Israel in, in Palestine for decades, without governments stepping in or sanctioning or even considering sanctioning. So, as a Palestinian, um, what? How do you feel about that? And how do other Palestinians feel uh, about it? Do they see the double standard? Not to justify what's happening in Ukraine or to compare, but to just simply. The, the reaction of the world is where you see the hypocrisy, including uh, even, you know, um, uh, Israel, the Israeli government themselves are actually uh, condemning. Uh, uh, they were late, but they started to condemn what was happening in Ukraine. Um, indeed, I, I see your point. And just to be very, very brief, we, the Palestinians, have uh, for long understood uh, that there is a double standard for when it comes to dealing with us and dealing with others. Um, what the invasion of Ukraine uh, did, it just exposed things on a very, very clear uh, blank page. It just exposed things very clearly to us, again, confirming our suspicions that, for example, when it comes to the ICC, the delays, postponements, and complications that we always face, 
it be it could be resolved within a week because the ICC decided to open a conversation in uh, sorry to open an investigation in Ukraine war crimes within a week of the invasion or like maybe two weeks actually why it took them seven years to open an investigation for Palestine and 20 years of uh, uh, struggling to get this uh, thing opened there, there is a problem of double standards we know when the, the Americans are encouraging resistance in Ukraine against the occupation of Russian forces, when the Americans and Europeans are preaching and glorifying Ukrainian resistance, I understand that there is his huge double standard. But the thing is, I cannot be always um, disappointed and um, I cannot have expectations of those people. I cannot be always expecting the Americans to come to my aid or the Europeans. What we all where we are now is understandment, understanding that the world is not preaching. Um, it shouldn't be, they shouldn't be preaching on us how to resist, how to live our lives. Where we find ways to resist, we should resist. When the Europeans condemn our ways of doing things, that's their problem because they've never held their part of the deal. They've never actually stood by their ideals. We are the ones who are facing an occupation and apartheid. We are the ones fighting. We see the double standard and we expect nothing from people who are hypocrites. We, we prefer to expose double standards and find the people who are supporting us, willing to boycott, divest and sanction, willing to protest for Palestine. Those are our allies and they should be the ones who we amplify the voices of and support as well. Yeah, I mean, you make a good point. Um, Palestinians have been protesting and resisting peacefully. Uh, for uh, decades now, especially with the boycott, divestment, and, and sanctions movement. And even that is meeting so much uh, resistance. But it's interesting to see that how the world is urging and uh, cheering and even arming the Ukrainians to have a guerrilla warfare to resist. Giving the, um, tips Ahmed, on how to do Molotov uh, cocktails and how, like, giving them uh, online. Right. But direction. however, anything like that in Palestine is autom- automatically condemned and, uh, as terrorism and terrorist organizations. So it's become, like you said, very clear how now it has exposed what many of us already known, but it's now as clear as black and white of these double standards or what they call the Palestinian uh, exception. Thank you so much for joining us, Jalal. Uh, for being on True Talk, and um, we'll look forward to having you again in the future. Ramadan Karim, Jalal. Ramadan Karim, thank you very much. Yeah, enjoy Ramadan breaking time. fast. Thank you. thank you, thank you. Maybe you'll have some attire for something tonight. Oh Absolutely. gosh, Jerusalem yeah. has the best cake and the best sesame bread and uh, uh, eggs. You can go, Jalal, and Ahmed and I can <laughs> okay, talk right. about food. We'll just get hungry now. Okay, thank you, Jalal. I'll go eat now. Okay, <laughs> enjoy your fast. <laughs> Thank Thanks. you. Bye-bye. That was, so was Jalal. Uh, yeah, Summer, you like to just to talk with me at the same time. Okay, let's say it together. How is is the phone guy finished or not? Uh, no, he uh, is walking uh, back and I'm, forth. Or, I, actually... I think listeners are just surprised that you're still using a, a regular phone at home. Landline. Well, uh, you know, remember when there was a hurricane? Who had the phone running? Only me, <laughs> because okay. and I have one of these old-fashioned phones where you, it's uh, uh, what they call you know the old-fashioned ones. It's not a wireless phone. No, you mean it's not a digi- It's like uh, wired. 
They have yeah. a handset that's wired. Yeah. Is it also the kind that has a dial that you turn it and it goes back to, 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 to you know? Mm, the, I can't. Or does it push button? I think it's a push push button. I have okay. to take a picture and put it because I don't think they sell them anymore. But uh, Ahmed, without it, we were not able to communicate when we had a hurricane 20 years ago. But my husband is a physician, so he has to have a phone because we get these phone calls, annoying phone calls 24 hours a day, but especially at night. And um, if he keeps his uh, iPhone uh, next to him, on, then there is tremendous disturbance because people from different uh, time zones will be texting or sending messages. So we have to have you know an that, You know the iPhone has uh, to mute notifications option. He can't but... mute it. Oh, oh, my husband doesn't know except on and off. <laughs> Are oh, you kidding okay. me? Oh, all right. Well, sorry. Oh, my this. gosh. Let's not go there. <laughs> but I want to get back to uh, talking about Ramadan. And um, how are you spending your day during Ramadan? I know you, you said you got up for the Sahur one time. And by the way, if you're just listening, if you're just joining us, uh, this is Summer and I on True Talk. And right now we're observing the holy month of Ramadan uh, together with um, over, I guess, a, you know, 1.5 billion Muslims around the world that are practicing or observing Ramadan. Ramadan is the ninth month on the Islamic lunar calendar. Just like the Jewish community, we also have a, we follow a lunar calendar for religious purposes and for holidays and um, observances. So right now we're observing this month of Ramadan. Ramadan is a special month, as you know, Summer, because this is a month that the Holy Quran started to be revealed in. Now, it wasn't all revealed in one month. It actually took 22 or 23 years to be revealed to Muhammad, the prophet that brought it from God, but it started in the month of Ramadan. So this is also a special month for extra worship, and for reading the Quran and doing all these extra prayers. So it's not just about uh, you know not eating and drinking during the daytime. Right? Some are maybe talking to the phone guy again. Yes, I disrupting am. Uh, my, disrupting my our radio show. I don't know. Ahmed, uh, I waited like six months to fix this phone. And uh, they told me between eight and five. And it had to be during the radio show. But I'm going to come back to you in a few seconds. But can you mention, uh, because everybody, one of the customs is to recite the whole Quran. Can you address that? Because I have decided to do something different. Oh, you're doing something different? Well, we wouldn't expect anything different from Samar to do something different than what's being practiced for 1,400 years. But uh, the Quran is um, has 114 chapters, or they're called surahs. Uh, but uh, in addition to that, it's also broken into 30 parts. Um, this is so every so it's become a tradition in the month of Ramadan to read the entire Quran uh, one part for you know uh, for each day. So now we're in the 14th, um, not the 14th, what day are we? I guess we're almost the 14th. 14th yeah, I think or, today is either uh, Saturday is going to be 15 days. Okay, yeah, Saturday will be 15 days. So uh, by Saturday, we'll have half the Quran, have, have, should have read half of the Quran or 15 parts of it. And it can be, you know, some people read it all at the same time. It would take about 30 minutes to read one part. Uh, some, well, it depends on how fast you read. Uh, 
Others would, uh, you know, break it up throughout the day. So they'd read a little bit in the morning, a little bit throughout the day or after every prayer. Um, and all of this is designed to get closer to God, uh, our creator. Um, our show is not a religious show. It's usually, you know, we usually talk about politics and global affairs. However, um, you know, Ramadan is often misunderstood or not known at all. But I was actually, you know, I went on the AAA website the other day. I, I was, you know, shopping for insurance. It was one of the places that, you know, I went to. And I was surprised that they're saying, you know, happy Ramadan on that website. So I don't know if everyone is seeing that or they just happen to know that I'm Muslim. So they're putting content special to me because that's how it is now uh, on the Internet. Or is everyone else seeing you know, happy Ramadan, because that may not excite some other customers out there that don't like Muslims very much. Uh, but it's becoming more and more mainstream in America to see uh, Ramadan uh, observance or celebrations or recognition in different shops. Uh, so for us, like I said, we're uh, not eating or drinking during daylight hours, but at sunset, um, you know, we start eating. Uh, usually it's a tr tradition, like Summer said, to break the fast. Uh, first thing that you eat is some dates from a date palm. Um, so these are, I don't know, I, I think everybody's eating dates, but if you haven't, you can find them in your Publix. And uh, some water. And then uh, different meals. So a lot of families, this is a time for families to eat together. Some people go out to eat, but usually they'll eat at home. Also mosques, which are house, our, our houses of worship, they'll host uh, iftars. Iftars basically break breaking fast in Arabic. They'll host these iftars. Last night, by the way, the mayor of St. Petersburg held a, a community iftar in uh, downtown St. Petersburg at the Coliseum. I didn't get a chance to go, but those that went said um, it was really enjoyable. I think this is like the third or fourth year that they actually do that. And so... More and more mayors are actually hosting iftars. I'm not sure if Biden is hosting an iftar this year, but um, you know, sure. during Obama and others, other presidents yeah. in the past, they've hosted even Bush. You know, they've hosted these iftars, but they did not do it under Trump. Uh, I, I think he knew that people were not uh, are not going to show up. But let me just read this uh, breaking news, Ahmed. Sean breaking in news? W okay. Yeah, mm. Sean in the WMNF newsroom wanted us uh, to let you know that Governor Ron DeSantis has signed HB5 into law. It outlaws abortions in Florida after 15 weeks. We'll bring you more on the WMNF news headlines at 3.30. This message is from our news director, uh, Sean Kenan, about uh, HB5. It's something that we can talk about it, you and I, from a Muslim perspective, maybe next time or next week. Uh, but Ahmed, this year I decided, like, Every year I do recite the Quran. I, you know, because of COVID, I don't go for the night prayers at the mosque. Um, and I haven't gotten a chance to do it this year. But every year I would, uh, every day, like you said, after every prayer, five prayers a day, I would recite the Quran. Of course, Ahmed, the minute I decide to do that, I fall asleep, uh, which is besides the point. But then this year I said, why not study? So I decided just to study the last part of the Quran, which has like 30 surahs, 30 chapters. And I have memorized about 24. And I am beginning okay. to find out, Ahmed, that memorizing at my age is not very simple. But subhanAllah, the Quran 
uh, is like poetry, but it's not poetry. It's like... Um, it's divine. I, I to, mean, and I, yeah, I don't think you can explain no, but it, but way, I've heard this the from before. The, Arab, the Arabic words, the sentence, but it's not poetry at all, but there is logic. Like when I'm trying to uh, memorize washamsi uh, waduhaha wallayli, okay, I'm now <laughs> confused. But there is music, uh, but there is also there's a rhythm. Uh, there's a rhythm to it. There is rhythm, rhythm, yeah. So it's fascinating. Okay, so some are it, because you said you've memorized some. So can you recite something for us in you know less than a minute? Uh, yes, let's say something new that you memorized. You know. Okay, don't put me on the spot because when something <laughs> like this happens, all of a sudden I forgot, like, what is my name now? Okay, this this one I memorized uh, yesterday. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والشمس وضحاها والقمر إذا تلاها والنهار إذا جلاها والليل إذا يغشاها والسماء وما بناها والأرض وما طحاها ونفس وما سواها فألهمه ألهمها فجورها وتقواها قد أفلح من زكاها وقد خاب من دساها كذبت ثمود بتغواها إذ بعث أشقاها فقال لهم رسول الله ناقة الله وسقياها فكذبوه فعقروها فدمدم عليهم ربهم بذنبهم فسواها ولا يخاف عقباها Oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. I don't Very even good. know my, I can't if, memorize my husband's uh, cell phone number. Can you believe it? This is God and you're going to memorize his words. But if you notice, every single verse in that surah ends the same yes. way with ha alif, which yeah, is the sound is ha. Uh, so there's this rhyme. Also. Yeah, this rhyming in it also helps. Uh, that's not all the chapters aren't like that, but this one is specifically. But I it's think we're out of time. Yeah, this is called the sun, the surah. We're out of time, Summer, so we have to go. Um, it's been great. Happy Ramadan, everyone. We'll see you at the same time, same place next uh, Thursday. This is True Talk on WMNF, WMNF Tampa. The news is next. Muhammad, ya Mustafa, ya Imam al-Mursalina, ya Mustafa, ya Shafi'a al-Alamina, ya Mustafa, ya Imam al-Mursalina, ya Mustafa, ya Shafi'a al-Alamina, ya